Amen. Amen. God is good. Amen. Isn't he good? It's so good to be together. So thankful for that time of worship and the Advent season and for Steph and Tyler and that wonderful moment. It's good to be with you all, River West. It's good to be with those of you tuning in live in your living rooms. So thankful to worship with all of you together. As you're getting settled, I'll invite you to pull out your Bible this morning and open to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17. We have an incredibly significant passage that we're going to unpack today, significant and very complex, so I am longing to move us as quickly as I can to be in the text. But while you're turning, I have some great news I want to share with you. The day before Thanksgiving... We got word from our governor that we're going to be able to go back to in-person gatherings next Sunday, and that's a huge praise. Yes. Not only can we go back to in-person gatherings, but she has actually increased the number of those gatherings from 50 to 100. So we'll be telling you more about that. Yeah. We'll be telling you more um, about that in the days to come tune in, but just know that on Wednesday, again, the link for that service will go live. You can reserve your spots to be in here and celebrate Advent with us in our beautiful sanctuary. We're excited to do that. But right now, I'm excited to get in the Word. Luke 17 is where we go. And just to recap where we've been, Jesus in Luke 17 is on his way to Jerusalem with his disciples. And what we've noticed as we've been studying the passage is that this is more than just a physical geographic journey. This is a journey of formation. Jesus is actually using this journey to form his disciples along the way as he sort of moves headlong towards Jerusalem, knowing that when he gets there, he will suffer and die, be crucified, and be raised again. And so as he moves towards Jerusalem with his disciples, he's teaching, he's forming them, he's preparing them for the ministry that they will inherit after his death and resurrection and ascension. And while they're traveling in Luke 17, the topic of the kingdom comes up. We learned about this last Sunday. Christopher introduced us to this. The latter half of Luke 17 is all about the kingdom of God. The Pharisees asked Jesus, when will the kingdom come? And so Jesus launches into this extensive discussion. And what we learned last Sunday is that when Jesus thinks of the kingdom, he thinks of two stages or two sort of aspects of the kingdom. There's the present reality of the kingdom. And Christopher talked a lot about that last Sunday. That comes because Jesus is here. He's God's king. He's come to eradicate sin. He's come to die on a cross. He's come to defeat the work of Satan. He's come to pour out the Holy Spirit. There are all of these benefits that we enjoy in the present reality of God's kingdom. And yet, there is this unfinished aspect. As Jesus ascends back to his father, the world knows there's more to come. We now wait for a future hope, for the return of Christ, when he'll finish what he started, when he'll make everything right, when he'll finally bring judgment and justice to our world, when he'll finally wipe away evil for good. 
Oh, how the Christian longs for that day. Tyler and Stephanie did such a masterful job of explaining that longing. It's Advent. Advent is a season where we long for the second coming of Christ. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. And the entire second half of this passage from 22 to 37, Jesus devotes to teaching about his second coming. And it's a very fascinating passage. It's very riveting. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read the whole text to you, and then I'm just going to give you a minute to let it sink in and just sort of soak in it. Here's what Jesus said. He turns his attention now to his disciples. He'd been speaking to the Pharisees. Now, everything he's about to say, he's saying to believers, to Christians, to followers of Jesus. He said to the disciples, verse 22, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first... He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the day of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Now, what, now what I want to do right now is just hit the pause. I'm going to unpack this in a moment, but I have found that sometimes with a text like this, with this much intensity, this much depth, this much complexity, it can be helpful to take a moment and just sort of take stock of your inner life in this moment. What are you thinking? What are you feeling in this moment? What's happening inside of you? You hear this passage read. I, experience has told me that when, when a passage like this is read in a church of our size, the reactions and responses and thoughts and feelings run the gamut. 
Some people are probably experiencing right now shock. They're thinking, I had no idea this was in the Bible. This is in the Bible? Shock. Some people are experiencing confusion. Some people are thinking, I hope this doesn't happen until I can get married. People are thinking all kinds of different things, all right? Some people are, are experiencing curiosity, wondering, wow, what does all this mean? Some people are feeling longing, desire. Some people are probably experiencing confusion, even doubt, perhaps even disdain. Thinking, is this really in the Bible? So it begs the question, what is the purpose of this kind of teaching? What is the purpose? And what I want you to do is imagine with me right now, just for a moment, imagine that right now in the middle of my sermon, the events of this passage happened right in this moment. There was this cosmic celestial event the heavens are split open, lightning, and, and, and we realized Christ has actually returned. And the question that I want you to ask yourself is, would you be caught off guard if that happened right in this moment? Would it startle you? Would you be ready? Because I think that's the purpose of this teaching. I think Jesus is trying to tell his disciples, I want you to live ready. Will you think about that phrase? Live ready. Jesus is not teaching this kind of material so that people can try to figure out the date. The purpose of this is not to scratch people's curiosity about end times. Jesus is completely uninterested in end times curiosity. He couldn't care less. And actually, there's not a single end times passage in the Bible that's designed for people to try to figure out when that day will come. The purpose of a teaching like this is to raise the awareness of true disciples of Jesus so that they'll live ready so that they'll live in this world with a wisdom. The disciples, remember, they had come to Jesus and they said, increase our faith. And Jesus says, here's what faith looks like in this world. Living by faith means living with an inner spiritual awareness. This event is going to happen. I don't know when, but I know it's gonna happen. Will I be ready? And will I live with wisdom and discernment and an inner awareness so that when that day comes, I will not be caught off guard. That's what Jesus is doing. And here's what he does. And this is where you'll want to take notes. Jesus teaches his disciples four truths about his return. Four truths. And you need to understand all of them. Number one, it's desirable. Number two, it will be obvious. Number three, it will catch many by surprise. And number four, it will be deadly. So the topic of the return of Christ is serious stuff. And teaching about the return of Christ is serious 
business. This may be the most important sermon you ever hear. This may be a sermon you realize, I need to share this with someone. You know, there's a little share button on YouTube. You can share the sermon with you. You may realize, I need to share this with someone. This is incredibly serious. Jesus wants his disciples to live ready. And he says, here's four things you gotta know. So we're gonna walk through them. Number one, the return of Christ is desirable. So desirable. Jesus knew that the moment he departed, his absence would bring about an intense longing for him to return among his followers because they loved him. They loved being around him. Being around Jesus was the source of their greatest joy and Jesus knew this. So look what he said in verse 22. He said, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the son of man and you will not see it. Jesus knew there's a day coming and that day came pretty soon after he taught this. A day when he ascended, Luke records it in the very first chapter of Acts. There the disciples are there with Jesus and if you know the first chapter of Acts, they, they say to Jesus, Lord, when will, you, when will you complete setting up your kingdom? And Jesus basically says, the dates and the times of that are not for you to know. In other words, it's none of your business, all right? And then, and then he says, and besides, you're gonna, you're gonna get the Holy Spirit, you're gonna receive power, and your job now is not to be preoccupied with that. Your job is to live on mission in this world to accomplish my purposes by the power of the Spirit. And right after he said that, he started floating up into the heavens. Can you imagine being there? He's floating up and they're standing there watching Christ literally leave, depart from them. And Luke describes it in Acts chapter one as a cloud taking Christ away and they're standing there gazing into heaven and then two angels appear and they say to the disciples, why are you staring into heaven? And the answer is, wouldn't we all be when someone just floated up into the heavens? But they're, what they're doing is they're tapping into this long, immediately the, the disciples were experiencing desire to be with Christ. They immediately realized Jesus has, has left us and they felt this longing for his return right away. And we feel that longing. We look at that word desire in verse 22. I wanna drive this home. That word is so strong in the Greek. It's the Greek word epithumeo, and it means a focused longing and passionate desire. The word is actually used negatively and sometimes in the New Testament to describe coveting, even lusting and positively to describe a burning, passionate desire. Jesus in Luke 22 said, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I depart. He's talking about the Lord's Supper. And he said, I've, I've passionately longed for this meal with you before I depart. Same word, same word. And Jesus is saying, that's what you're gonna feel. And what is the point of this? The point of this is, that's what Christians feel. So what I, what I want to argue right now and what I want to encourage you to think about is that kind of desire, that longing, that passionate waiting is supposed to be almost part of the mainstay of the Christian life. 
Every believer just lives with that. In fact, I would, I would even press that a little deeper and say to not live with a desire for the return of Christ could be to expose that you don't really understand what the Bible teaches about spiritual reality, about how broken this world is. It could be to expose that you have lost sight of of ultimate reality, that one day Christ will return and we live in the meantime with this longing. And what's amazing is if you read the New Testament, this became the basic posture of the early church. Every, almost every letter that Paul wrote, Peter wrote, when they described the early church, they described them as longing desiring, loving, looking, waiting for the return of Christ. You get to the book of Revelation and the saints in chapter six, they're crying out, how long, O Lord, how long? Or you get to the very last chapter of the book of Revelation and John cries out, come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus. It's the posture of the early church. And I want to ask River West, this, this is the posture of our church, and I want to ask you, is this your deepest heart's desire? Do you live with that desire every day? And, of course, we're not just talking about something personal here, so let me, let me press this a little bit. The desire that Jesus is talking about is more than just sort of a personal, I get to go to heaven, or I get relief from suffering, or I get rewarded for time in this world. Jesus is talking about something much bigger than that. He's talking about his glory. He's talking about disciples and a community of Christ who, who live in this world and, they, and they're constantly reminded Jesus needs to come back and be vindicated. His, he, it's been far too long that we've lived in this world with Christ being mocked and humiliated and justice going unserved and evil reigning in this world. And the Christian lives with this deep sense of angst. God, this world is terribly broken. And every time I turn on the news and every time I watch a movie or turn on entertainment, I see the Lord Jesus Christ being mocked and ridiculed. And a, and a world falling apart and I long for Christ to return and set things right and eradicate evil and we live with that longing. Amen, River West? We live with that. There's a weariness that comes with living in this world. The longer you live here, you start to feel it. And you start to realize my deepest longings will be fulfilled when Christ returns. I've had people ask me in the last six, seven months, hey, pastor, do you think we're in the end times? <laughs> you think we're there with the fires and, and, the, and everything that's happening, earthquakes and wars and, I mean, plagues. I mean, there's been locust plagues in Africa and people are curious, do you think Christ is coming soon? And, and my answer to that is, I don't know, but you know what? I really hope so. I really hope so. And so should you. That's the first truth. Here's truth number two. The return of Christ will be obvious. It's desirable. It will be obvious. You will not be wondering, wait a minute, is this it? You're not going to be sitting around going, wait, is, it, is, is he here? Or 
figuring out like between some options, okay, it's either a nuclear holocaust or it's the 4th of July gone terribly wrong or it's the second coming of Christ. You're not going to be wondering. No one's going to be wondering. Jesus says it will be clear and you will know immediately Jesus is here. He compares it to lightning. Look at that, verse 24. He says, for as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other. So the metaphor here is not the kind of lightning that comes down vertical. It's the kind of lightning that strikes horizontally from one side of the heavens to the other. And you can, it's just as clear as day. Jesus says, that's what, that's what it will be like when the son of man returns. It will be unmistakably visible. It will be obvious to everyone. It will be celestial, frightening, sudden, glorious, eye-catching. And Jesus says, I'm telling you this for two reasons. The first reason I'm telling you this is I'm warning disciples, don't be gullible, okay? Don't be easily hoodwinked by people who, who claim that I think the Messiah is here. I have some kind of insider knowledge. You notice that the, the verse before 23, he said, people who say, look here, look there. Jesus says, because you will long for my return, it's actually possible that disciples, because they have that longing, they could be easily duped by all of these false prophets, false messiahs, false claimers. Jesus says, don't be gullible. You'll know. It will be so clear. I am amazed that there continue to be false religious teachers who get on a camera and make the claim, I've figured out when Jesus is coming back. I cannot believe this still happens. And I cannot believe that good people still fall for this stuff. When it's so overtly clear, Jesus said over and over and over, you will not know the time of the day. But there's one thing you will know. You will know when it happens. And that's the only thing you need to know in that moment. You'll know. So don't be duped. Don't be duped by false sightings, false prophecy updates, false predictions. Jesus says, don't waste your time on that stuff. And the second thing that he's saying here, he's saying, and this part is sobering, okay? He's saying like lightning that flashes, this is gonna be a massive moment, cosmic, celestial. It will, it will rattle the entire earth. And here's what Jesus is saying. It's not just believers who will recognize what's happening in this moment. Every single human being on the planet will know in an instant, this is Jesus Christ who has returned to finish what he started. Whether they're ready for that or not, spiritually, this is sobering. And it leads me to the third truth, so critical. So the return of Christ is desirable. Yes, the return of Christ will be obvious, but also the return of Christ will catch many 
by surprise. Many. Many people will be so preoccupied with the everyday affairs of life, eating and drinking, working and shopping, marrying, homemaking, career building, that they won't see it coming and they won't be ready. And the point of this is to sober people up. It's to wake people up. Jesus compares his return to two of the great periods of judgment against humanity in the Bible. Did you see that? When you look back now, verses 26 through 29, I'm gonna work through this quickly, but as I read this, I wanna point out two really interesting things here. The first thing I wanna point out is that Jesus, when he's talking about Noah and Lot, he does not draw attention to their merit morally, why they are, Rescued. In fact, if you know anything about Noah and Lot, they're sort of like <laughs> the epitome of gross, moral, despicable. I mean, these, these two were, were far short of righteous, all right? And not only that, Jesus does not draw attention to the wickedness of their contemporaries. When in fact, the contemporaries of Noah and Lot were extremely wicked, but that's not what he draws their attention to. So look what he draws people's attention to. Verse 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking, marrying, being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. They were just doing everyday life, things that are completely morally neutral, eating and drinking, getting married. These are actually perfectly good things unless they capture your attention to the point where you are preoccupied with this world at the expense of the next. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. They were caught by surprise. This is so important. This takes us, now think about this. This is taking us to the heart of the gospel. What is the difference between Noah and Lot and other people? One thing, Noah and Lot were living ready. They had heard God's word, his warning, and they responded in faith and their contemporaries ignored God's word and got preoccupied with life. They said, that's never, that's never gonna happen. Never gonna happen. I'm gonna go about life in this world. And it's this powerful, good news. This is actually good news. River West, this is a reminder. This has nothing to do with merit, moral merit. The difference boils down to one thing and one thing only. Has your heart responded in faith to the word of Christ? Do you believe Jesus when he says what you just heard? There's a day coming when he will return. Some people will live ready. They'll live with wisdom. They'll live with faith in this world. They'll they'll walk around this world knowing that day could come any minute and I cannot wait for that day to come. And other people will ignore the word of Christ, ignore the gospel, disobey the gospel, ignore all obvious reality and they'll become so preoccupied 
with perfectly good things that they will not be ready. So critical. But here's the thing. Jesus then goes on and he says, but, but there's another warning that believers, it will be so unexpected that even believers might be tempted to turn back and get stuff. <laughs> it's gonna come like that and you're gonna think, wait a minute, do I have time to go back and, you know, get the heirloom? So, there, so Jesus describes someone who's on the rooftop or someone who's out in the field. And he says, don't turn back. You will be tempted. Don't turn back. That stuff is, is not going to have any meaning or any value in that moment. Have you ever played the question game where, where um, we play this in our house, where, where you ask people really kind of provocative questions to get them thinking? And one, one of the questions I love is, if, if your house was burning down and you only had time to grab one material possession, what would you grab? All right. Your house is burning. You can think about it. What would you go back for? All right. And under normal circumstances, that would be perfectly reasonable, but not this moment. Not this moment. The believer knows physical, material stuff is, is of, no, it's of no significance. And so that's why Jesus says, verse 33. So now you can see 33 in its context. Just look at it really closely. He says, Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. And if you know the New Testament, you know Jesus made a statement like that on many occasions. He probably used it in different contexts. But this context, what he's saying is, in that moment, when I return, if you are preoccupied with life in this world, trying to preserve it, trying to build it, if you're over-preoccupied, you could be caught unaware. He's not saying ignore this life. He's saying live with a healthy spiritual detachment from the things of this world. A healthy spiritual detachment. You care about it kind of, but you also know that none of this really matters. What really matters is faith, relationships with other people, the eternal destination of other people that I love. Those are the things that matter. And so Jesus says, don't be about preserving your life here. Be willing to lose your life here for the sake of your life in the new age. Because this moment will catch people by surprise. Catch people by surprise. That's the third truth. So it will be desirable. It will be obvious. It will be surprising. And there's one more, and perhaps this is the most critical, and this is the most serious. The return of Christ will be deadly. Uh, another word that I toyed with this week was just the word divisive, but they both fit what happens next. They both fit. Deadly, divisive. So we look again, finally, verses 34 to 37. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed, one will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. Now I'll pause just for a moment and ask or answer a question that many people are probably asking. So a lot of people ask in this moment, is this 
about the rapture. So there's this doctrine, this Christian teaching called the rapture. And the, and the idea of the rapture is that um, before tribulation or before the final judgment, Christ will come and, and believers will be raptured out and then the, and then the judgment will happen. And the, a couple things I'll say about the, the rapture. First of all, it's a relatively new doctrine that historically Christians did not believe in. And one of the reasons for that is there's almost zero biblical evidence for it. And actually this passage is not describing the rapture because this moment is actually the moment when judgment comes. So this is not Jesus coming sort of a middle time to lift Christians out and then he's coming back another time to bring judgment. This is the judgment. So it's not about the rapture. And the reason we know this is about judgment is because of what Jesus says next. Verse 37, so look closely now. So Jesus has said, there will be two people in bed in the ancient world. Family members all slept in the same bed together. There will be people in bed together and one will be taken and one won't. There will be best friends out doing like a daily chore, grinding grain, whatever, whatever friends do together. And one will be taken and one won't. And the disciples rightly say, what do you mean by taken? Lord, where will they be taken? And Jesus uses this Hebrewism, this, this Jewish sort of parable that comes from the book of Job, where he basically says, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. This is sober, folks. This is serious business. Jesus is saying, what I'm talking about is judgment. I'm talking about my return. The Son of Man will return, and when he returns... He will usher in, finally, the the eschatological kingdom. He will recreate heaven and earth. Believers will inherit the new earth. We're not going to be whisked away in some kind of a rapture. We're staying here in the new earth where there's no sin, no brokenness, no tears, no illness, no disease. The fall is eradicated. We inherit the new earth and we reign with King Jesus. And those who are not ready, who have been preoccupied with the things of this present world, will be taken away to judgment. And it's serious. And every believer can imagine that moment with someone you love. The point of these two illustrations of two people in bed, two people grinding grain, Here's the point, it's really simple. He's saying people who are side by side in this life, closely related in this life, they may very well be separated in the life to come. And intimacy or close proximity in this life does not necessarily have any bearing on what will happen in the life to come. This is life and death stuff. And so it it brings me full circle to where I started. And the question, are we ready? Are we living ready? Are we, we, do we read this as believers and say, I believe this with all of my heart and not only do I believe it, Jesus, it's desirable. I'm longing for this. But I also live with a sobriety that my, my mission while I wait is to, 
is to let people see my faith in action, share my faith as often as I can with as many as I can because I know this day is coming and it matters. To live longing, desiring the return of Christ, worshiping Christ, which is what we're gonna do now. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come as I, as I bring the message to a close. This is, this is how we live, folks. We believe every word that Jesus said. And we wait. And we worship Christ along the way. And we, as a church, we share the gospel. We honor Christ. We represent him in our world. And we're going to sing about that. The song that, that we chose together is a song about the second coming. You know, many of the great hymns of the faith all include a verse about the second coming, right? Because believers are longing for that day. And the song we're gonna sing is all about the return of Christ. And that's one of the ways that we stir up our desire is to worship the Jesus who will one day return. Will you pray with me about that? And then we'll sing together. Heavenly Father, how we thank you for your word, even even the serious passages, even the passages, Jesus, where you speak directly to things that matter, how we need these kinds of texts, how we need to come to them with humility and to sit under them, not sit over them in critique, but sit under them with a humble heart and ask, Lord, would you stir up faith in me, stir up desire in me, stir up wisdom in me, through this teaching. And Lord, how we as a church say along with the apostle John, come Lord Jesus, come. We long for that day. And we pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.